manipulating market participants and thinking that you get the good without the bad is always a bad thing. That's the same thing that happened in the housing market, right? Housing never goes down. So you can just take all these loans and it always goes up. It's perfectly safe. There's no risk in it. There's always risk. There always should be risk because risk is, generally speaking, correlated with returns. A lot of people don't think that that's true or doesn't exist, but that's always during when up markets, right? You have up markets and everything are going good, which for us, we never want to be in a situation where short-term things will actually destroy long-term gains. What's up, everybody, and welcome to Saving Capitalism. Today, we got a lot we're gonna cover. So first thing is uh, we're gonna talk and hit on three main subjects. Uh, bad equals good. And I'm going to go into uh, an array of topics within this segment here. Now we also have technology and wealth creation. It's not quite what I think you think it might be, meaning we're not just talking like tech startups, all that. No, we're, we're talking about everything else and in the process and how that works and how it can work for you. And then we're also doing a behind the curtains. I'm going to go over my struggles what's happening in the markets, uh, my deal, and on a day-to-day -day basis, what I'm tackling currently and what that looks like to make sure that we give a kind of open analysis and we can be transparent with everybody on what it looks like. Because after all, that's the point. The point is to share with you guys, allow knowledge, and so you guys see everything we see, what we're doing, and good, bad, or indifferent the results come as they may. Uh, that helps us out in a lot of ways. First of all, it helps you understand what we are all about, what our mission is about, what we're trying to accomplish. It also helps bring opportunities to us. So it's a very important part of our strategy. We let people know and then we get the benefit um, from it. And that includes criticism. So that's great. I'm okay with that. Now let's get started off. Bad equals good. This is a topic that um, is easy to say, hard to do, we'll put it that way. Now, bad equals good is very, very true, meaning that the best opportunities we see are normally in the worst markets. Uh, you learn the most through bad things, not from good things. That's when opportunity arises. That's also, though, more importantly, where we refine. You see, in good times, that usually covers up bad things, cracks, weaknesses, things that were being overlooked or not even noticed during good times. And that allows us to, of course, get better, get stronger. In fact, if it wasn't for those things, it leads to a self-imploding. And we've seen this happen. This is one of the big reasons why you have things like the dot-com phase, right? Where valuations were just soaring and they just got higher and higher and higher and nobody really cared to look at the fundamentals until the weight of it couldn't support and the cracks eventually broke open and swallowed that valuations whole. Now, these things also flush out things in the economy. They flush out short-term players. They flush out how people are really doing things and how markets are working. Um, we get to see uh, behind the curtains of the market and the players and participants in it. Uh, Warren Buffett often says, you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. That is a very, very true statement. Now, I want to talk about a few things under this subject. The first thing I want to talk about here is deal structures. And uh, generally speaking, in the world, world of funds, um, allocating capital, right, there's a few layers that goes into this. Now, the layers that you have is you first of all have the operations portion where you're dealing with revenue and the people and the allocation of revenue from everything from the workers, contractors, the um, asset itself, right? All the things that are going on within that company, within that asset um, that may be happening. Now, above that, you have things like leverage and debt. That may be um, institutionalized, that may be banks, that may be um, private. Um, you also have things above that like pref equity. And then above that, you have equity, right? Those are the layers of funds that we have. Now, GPs play in those and GPs are general partners and they have limited liabilities partners, right? That's what I do. So I'm a general partner. What I do is I buy up assets and I'm focusing on all the operations. I'm doing everything, right? From start to finish, I do all of it. Um, we turn these things around. 
Now, my model um, is value add. Now, value add means we are buying things and we are focusing on the first you know, two, three years almost purely on revenue. It's a revenue centralized focus. And uh, that means our expenses actually dramatically increase. And then the revenue increases. And then from there, we optimize and we do two things, meaning we get distributions and then we also have our uh, equity conversion period of time that we are getting back returns in the form of converting equity into returns. We normally do this through refinancing and I'll tell you reasons why we do that um, and not selling. Now, we don't include in our numbers and things the sell of the asset. Now, I, I'm gonna kind of talk about and maybe even share some of my grievances with the market. You have to understand that normally LPs, these are people that are buying securities, okay? That's why the SEC is over this industry and this part because GPs and the people putting deals together are selling securities as like assets and the investors are buying that security, right? Now, I don't actually like the way that's even phrased or structured because it, it, a lot of people I think view that security then as like a stock and that's not it at all, right? It's, it's not like you're getting a uh, description of exactly what that bond will pay, right? You are a equity participant. Uh, that means you're an owner, plain and simple. You are a owner, right? Now, ownership um, generally gets the good after it is produced, right? So the bad for ownership is the short-term stuff goes to, first of all, employees, the people doing the work on the ground, right? All that stuff. Then it goes to debt, right? And then if there's PREF equity or other structures like that. And then last, it goes to equity owners. Now, the good of that is all that upside, because everything else is at it like this fixed. So it's, it's a fixed, you have a salary, right? You're, you're contracting out with somebody to do work. And here's the bid, that's all they're getting. They are not participating in the upside of the work that is being done. That is reserved for the equities. They also then don't get the short term. Now, when markets were going up though, that is something I believe got very, very confused where everything was so good for so long, I think equity participants assumed that they were also acting as either bondholders or debt holders. And they got benefits of short term things like um, revenue and just consistency, everything going up. Um, and they didn't have any of the downside or two, they just didn't expect not ever having consistency. Now, the problem with that is, as we had markets and funds became very big, right, private equity in real estate became very big after 2015, and LPs started jumping into this industry like crazy. Now, while everything was going up, rate increases were going up, everything, uh, equity was going up, everybody just won all the time, right? That trained, I think, a huge, almost like a generation of LPs to think that that's how it works, right? That it's, and two, they also think that, oh, well, that investment was either just good or it, they didn't realize, I don't think, what was actually going on. And this was really blown up by government intervention. And the markets weren't reality, right? They, they weren't working even normally. Now, I've taken on investors in the last five years. Prior to that, we never had an investor ever. And uh, so we treat our investors like partners and we view you are an equity partner in, in it with us, uh, both good and bad. But what a lot of people started to, to do, especially funds and managers, is they really liked the fact that their investors were consistently getting either distributions or that investors didn't have to think about anything and perceived it as almost risk-free. Now, there's a few reasons why they liked it. First of all, the investors like it. And if they could do that and perform that for investors, that consistency, that lack of understanding of risk, um, and just a mailbox check, it didn't almost even look like equity, right? And then the investors gave more money because now all of a sudden, um, this is a great investment without really understanding, I think, the mechanics of it. Now, performance is great. That's what everybody's shooting for. That's what I shoot for, everything else. But the equity participants, though, need to understand what that is and that you do take the bad. And I think that was lost on a lot of people. And then they were shocked. Um, now, 
one of the things that our industry did a horrible job of, they started instituting things to basically remove the bad. This is always occurs at the top of markets, right? Market participants want to actually remove the bad and make it look bad. So as things are getting bad, they don't want it to look that way. They don't want it to be bad on them. So they, first of all, don't want to tell market participants what's really happening. And they definitely don't want to not do things to make those equity holders unhappy. They're scared of them almost. And they, because they need more money and they want more money. So they started instituting things and started giving distributions in ways that I don't understand because that doesn't make any sense, not if, to me, meaning that they started to fund distributions. Now, this is actually very common. It's not illegal, everyone. Um, and in fact, probably most of the people that are listening to this are participant or if you are a credit investor that invests in these things are actually in funds where your distributions um, that are given or that role was that was given to you from the funding mechanism of the deal, not the actual profit or revenue from the deal. Now, this is something people don't talk about. And uh, I, I don't mean to say that it's even bad. I don't mean to say that it's wrong. Um, I mean to talk about the role of the equity participants and what it is really happening versus not really. And this is why I don't personally do it, nor do I like it, but there's nothing wrong with it, everybody, okay? It is perfectly legal and fine. And most, in fact, 90% of funds and fund managers that I know um, do this. So I, I gotta make sure that's very, very clear. It is not my preferred means of doing it. I don't like it. What, what the mechanics of it is, is you fund. Let's say that you need a million dollars to do the deal. Now, you are wanting to give a 5%, uh, let's just use 10% to keep things really, really simple, um, that you're wanting to give a 10% uh, distribution, right? Well, that's what you say that it's going to do and achieve. Now, first of all, in markets when they were in the top, distributions and cash flow on deals because they were so expensive, right? That became really hard to give, almost impossible to give. In fact, the vast majority of time, it was totally impossible, meaning the asset could not even produce those. It doesn't make any sense that you're giving a 10% distribution, you're buying things at four caps. So there was two mechanics on how they resolved this, wanting investors to invest more and wanting that gravy train to keep going and wanting to look good because what it does is it makes them happy. It also boosts your internal numbers. Your IRR looks good. Why? Because you're giving money in the first year, you're giving a return. So what they do is, all right, I'm gonna not raise a million, I'm gonna raise 1.2 million. And now I have two years worth of a 10% distribution. The investors are happy, then they keep giving me money because they're giving distributions and my returns look great. They look really good. Why? Because the first two years of the deal, I'm already distributing it. And then what will happen is revenue will grow. It'll match then or, or meet those distribution lines. And then they'll start paying that out of the revenue growth that they were able to complete over those few years. Now, once again, this is common normal. The reason why I don't do it and I don't like it is first of all, just because I don't want to be holding your money and giving it back to you because that's not what I would want. I want my money to actually be going towards two things, either equity growth or income distribution. So my money needs to be growing in value or it needs to be giving me something for that money. I'm okay with either one, but what I don't want is my money to be sitting in an account and then handed back to me and saying that that's a return when it wasn't. It was just my money moving from one account to another. That doesn't make sense to me. Now, this is a discussion that has been brought up a lot because I even had investors that told me I should be doing this uh, because they say this, it makes investors happy, right? It looks good, everything else. Um, I, I don't get it though. Now, my viewpoints on things are totally open to change and they may change in the future. They probably are, always will. Uh, but as of right now, um, I, I just thought it doesn't make sense to me. What, I'm do what I believe you're doing is you're taking away the bad. So basically you're saying you can have your cake and eat it too, investors. You can be an equity participant, yet we're gonna ensure that you're getting distributions, air quotations for that, because they're not really, they're just handing you back your money. Um, but now you don't have, to, we can increase the income 
and we can increase expense loads. Um, we can drive income, but still giving distributions to you. So now all of a sudden you're acting more like lower levels within that stack, right? You're getting the upside of the equity, but then you're also, air quotations, getting the consistency, right, of returns. That makes investors very, very happy, right? Which is great. And I understand why that's great for funds and fund managers. That makes perfect sense, right? I, I just don't think it's great for the investor. Um, first of all, it warps the reality of what's actually taking place. Um, and that's the reason why I don't like it is because now, if you didn't increase that asset, all of a sudden the asset can't actually produce returns. That leaves a lot of people sitting there going, wait, hold on, for the last two years or three years, we've been getting those distributions. Now it, can, now it can't give distributions. How could it have before? Why can't it now, right? That opens up all of a sudden questions because you don't understand what's actually taking place with the asset. For me, I'm like, no, you're an equity participant, you're a partner, and that's how we, we need to do it. Now, the second thing that was happening was they started to do financial, um, not, not manipulation, but they were doing financial changes to benefit short-term, um, mainly investors, uh, and, and then worrying and kicking the can down the road. We saw things like interest only, right? Um, you, you saw things like floating rates, which justified then buying things at higher prices. And it also justified giving distributions. They were also doing things like instead of putting things into reserves, uh, they were giving distributions. And so it, that can put you in a very terrible situation. At the end of the day, though, what I'm explaining here that is that manipulating market participants and thinking that you get the good without the bad is always a bad thing, right? That's the same thing that happened in the housing market, right? Housing never goes down. So you can just take all these loans and it always goes up. It's perfectly safe. There's no risk in it. There's always risk. There always should be risk because risk is generally speaking correlated with returns. Now, a lot of people may don't, uh, don't think that that's true or doesn't exist, but that's always during when up markets, right? You have up markets and everything are going good, which for us, we never want to be in a situation where short-term things will actually destroy long-term gains. That doesn't make sense. I take all the risk. I'm the actual participant. It's my money. We're actually playing in it. Now, that's on the deal structure side, okay? Now that we have hard times and now that those things are not playing out, all of a sudden, what that does is that makes people think like they shouldn't be participating in markets. Um, all right, well, now it's bad. It was good, right? But now it's bad. That's actually not true. Uh, now, the numbers are better. Now, in the short term, you may say, no, they're not. But actual, what we're seeing today in the markets in general, value to income, it is better. It's better than when we were buying two, three years ago. You're paying less and you're getting more. Right now, is there risk? Well, of, of course there's risk, but I would actually argue that there's more risk two years ago than there was today. In fact, I did argue it. I put a lot of information out because there was more risk. I called that my rate runway, meaning that the rate runways are actually negative. So there's more chance of the revenues actually decreasing and going backwards than they are going forward because the runway is running out. And at that pivotal point, you start to get worried. So when that happened, and as that happened, we changed our whole entire deal outlook and what we were looking for. Now, this created a situation where we were buying certain assets for certain reasons. And in our markets, we have assets in every single one of our funded assets, which I made a whole video on this. You can go to self-storage income so you can actually see the comparison. I think we even put them up on, on, on the screen. In every single one of my assets, except one, um, all um, the market rates and all of them dropped, right? And this has happened, I, I don't think I've ever seen one market as of today, the market rents haven't dropped. I don't think that exists. So if so, somebody email, let me know, I, I haven't seen it. But um, when you look at that over the last two years, I'm talking, uh, rents have dropped. Now, when this rent contraction uh, has taken place, uh, we look at the comparison to our asset and the market. So that's what I did in the video, and I showed that in each one of our markets, 7 to 30% drop in overall rates, and that's per individual unit. So not that some only had a 7% drop. No, averaged out every single market, I believe, you could go back and check it, I put it all up, was over a 10% average 
rates in those markets dropped. All of them, though, had rates that dropped over 20%. Uh, during this exact same time, every single one of our deals, our revenue rose. It actually went up. Our, our revenue was rising. And some of them, it was at the exact same rate as rates were decreasing, meaning a 25% drop and we rose revenue by 25%. Every single one except one. And the reason why that one didn't have revenue rise because it was brand new and we were actually kicking people out and we were moving it around, right? So um, we were intentionally, not intentionally dropping revenue, but intentionally losing spots and people. Uh, and so that always takes place in that contracts. So for that one, because it was new and we were removing tenants and that thing is, of course, revenue dropped. Now, what, what does that matter and why that's important? Uh, because the assets that we were picking, we wanted to look at a rent runway that was not correlated with the market. This is a very important metric for me. Um, I, want to I wanted to buy things, and we shifted two years ago to buy things that market rents, right, will always impact us, okay, always. So it, it, this doesn't mean that, yeah, we're rocking it and everybody's doing bad. And no, market rents and vacancies or anything, that always impacts you, right? We understand that. That's actually why we chose assets and markets because we wanted our short-term upside to be something that we could get without the market. That's what we always do. So the bigger that is, the more resilient and insulated it is from overall contractions. Um, and that, that strategy worked out well. This also worked out very well for us through 2008 and going through that overall cycle. Now, at the end of the day, though, what we're doing is we are hedging and we are trying to build in for the bad. This also, though, now allows us to see all sorts of things in markets that we can find. The bad shows you things um, that creates opportunity. We have a development that we were doing in Surprise, Arizona. Now, the market shift occurred really last fall. So it was like a year ago when the first drop for self-storage came, um, as well as all assets because of higher interest rates, as we know. That market completely changed the landscape of demand for units. We were actually lucky because we'd not set our loan in yet because the spike in overall rates. So we actually were eight months longer on that development than we, than we thought of, which that's standard on all my developments. Uh, COVID and everything that's gone on has just put an absolute halt on developments. And that's good. That's why we like developments. Now you may say, why? You're dealing in markets that's harder. You're, it's taking you a lot longer to do deals, right? Then why is it, why, why do you like that? First of all, difficulty means higher barriers of entry, which means constrained supply, which means higher rates. So the fact that it is so hard for us to get it done means that all these other people aren't be able to get it done. And especially people that are short-term players, which are most developers, they're just flipping, we're not. That all of a sudden constrains supply within the market greatly, which the following years then drives up demand and we can price extraordinarily high because there's no options, there's no inventory that's been out there. So we love that. Now, we hate that we take the bad for it, right? That is not something we like. We have to deal now with cities and debt and contractors, and it's a whole thing. It requires astronomical amounts of time, work, effort. Obviously, investors don't like it because they're like, you should have had a project up a year ago, and it's not up, right? That's not fun. We don't like that. That's the bad. But we get the good with it, and we can't get rid of that. And that's why I'm comfortable in it, and I'm confident in it. Now, the bad associated, though, with our development um, in Surprise actually led us to rearrange our units because we could see what you're not able to see when occupancies are 96%. And that's where true or core demand lies. So now all of a sudden, we got to rearrange our units and actually increase our revenue per square foot, getting higher demand units, units that were very resilient, meaning they didn't decrease in price. So the bad not only led to good from contracted supply in the market, deals not going up and deals being put off, but it also led to our overall selection and increasing our revenue per square foot. All amazing things, right? These are amazing long-term successful things. So it makes our projects better. It makes us more profitable. But once again, that's always in the long-term, right? Because the short-term, year-to-year, those things fluctuate. Now, the next thing that we look at when the bad equals good. So a lot of these bad things, once again, that equal good things, 
is really hard to see. That is really hard to see largely because as a whole, we're driven by emotion. Most decisions that we all make are driven by emotion, even if we don't think that they are. Um, and investing, this is a death knell. It's an absolute death knell. This is why everybody buys and sells at the worst time, right? Because when markets are actually bad, that's when you should be buying, but that's when everybody's selling. It, it, it's just classic investor operations, right? Um, and that's how we've made huge amounts of money before we ever had investors, everything else. It was, we would do it in the bad. So through the great financial crisis, we didn't lose any deals, anything like that. And we were actually buying deals. And at the time, everybody looks back and says, well, if I had money, I'd go back there and buy too. Of course you would, because you can see what happened. Now you can see that it got better. At the time though, you wouldn't have, and you didn't, and nobody else did. Why? Because there was no good. It just sucked. And we were buying, and trust me, we did not expect things to, like, it sounds great hindsight and be like, oh, we just knew, right? Well, we knew given time, but we knew we may have to endure horrible things for years. That was a very real possibility. We thought that the turnaround and things getting better and everything would be, would happen, in fact, a lot longer than it actually did. It got better way sooner than we, we thought or even predicted. Now, with that said, there's a funny thing about markets, because if you buy when things are done, meaning, okay, we see the bottom now, right? We see the bottom, we know it, things are turning around. There's no good deals. You don't actually get deals at the bottom. You get deals like 25% before the bottom hits. That means your best deals will actually contract in value when you buy them. Why? Because if the seller knows that you hit a bottom and it's going up, they're not selling it to you at a discount. They sell it to you at a discount because they're trying to get rid of it because they know it's gonna lose more money. Most people don't like that. They can't handle that, right? So we don't try to time markets. Instead, we just say, this is a good deal, like a really good deal. Yeah, it may contract, but out, you know, all things being equal, this is a great deal. So even if it's not the bottom, we're buying that great deal. And doing that, it's worked out for us always, right? But that meant we also had to endure sucky times. We had a lot of unknowns and, and it, it's not like that was fun. You know, we were nervous about it. We were scared about it, but we did it right. So what we did is instead we set up structures that allowed that asset to go down and allowed time to happen, which we still do today. We don't want to take those advantage of those short-term things. We don't want to just be giving out money or taking money out or doing short-term interest rates and financing things because we know that those assets need to move up and down short term. And in the long ter term, if we do that, they're home runs, right? Now, all right, that is our, our overall um, bad equals good. The last thing on that, though, that I want to really hit on and touch on is knowledge, meaning that um, rough seas never made, or you know, calm seas never made a good sail sailor. Uh, knowledge and wisdom really is created through hardship and times. I feel like that's been our best thing is that we went through the Great Recession and we we were caught up with everything, everybody and everything else. And it, it just it created a great framework long term. And we understand and it, it made us much less emotional this time about it, which right when COVID hit and the world was failing, this was at the time when everybody you're, you're talking, there was bodies everywhere. We thought we were all going to die. Um, so then all of a sudden banks started to get rid of some office buildings and assets and we purchased one at pennies on the dollar. Like, and it was just in a three month period of time, immediately after that asset had doubled in value, meaning three, four months later, after we'd taken it, after we got it, that asset was worth double what we had paid just four months prior. Because when we bought it, everybody thought everything was still collapsing. Four months later, everybody realized, oh, it's not, right? Markets stabilized, uh, interest rates dropped, and everybody said, oh, it's not. And then all of a sudden that, that value or that price jumped. Four or five months later, it, we wouldn't have bought it. It wouldn't have been worth it or made sense. So controlling that emotion and then you know, moving forward. Now, most people, when they say control the emotion, I don't mean make dumb decisions, meaning like I should ignore risk. That, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actually looking at the risk in the face, analyzing them and structuring things to manage those risks because you understand they will happen. Not that you are in denial about those things happening. And so you're gambling. We're not talking about that. Let's be very, very, very clear. 
And then you also learn from those things and mistakes that allows you to buy better deals moving forward. Um, and that allows you to run them better uh, and optimize for those short-term things. All right, now technology. We're moving on to the next one, everybody. Technology and wealth creation. Now, a lot of people assume with technology and wealth creation that that means that you are doing a startup, right? I mean, you're taking advantage of, you're going to be in Google, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm not actually a, I, I love technology plays. I love companies that are, you know, we have SaaS businesses, everything else, but I, I don't like the blind shot in the dark meaning that I think the market will accept this or not. I, I don't like that. I, I'm, a, I'm obviously a commercial real estate guy. I'm a business owner. I like to see things and I like to see the revenue. I don't like to gamble. So that's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about though is wealth creation through implementation of technology into models that have not adapted is one of the greatest wealth, uh, wealth drivers and creators of all time. It is something that we have used lots in our industry today, but we also used it in past industries like, um, like our insurance and our insurance brokerage firms. Technology, we implemented, we optimized for it. It allowed us to have cutting edge advantages and that made all the difference. So when we look at wealth creation through technology, first of all, it is knowledge-based, it is um, productivity, efficiency, and it is actual like investments. The, these first ones meaning technology allows you to learn and understand things at paces that you couldn't before, right? You couldn't prior. There's none of these podcasts, there's nothing like that. And that is a huge ability for you to have wealth creation. The second side is productivity, efficiency, right? All of those things help us, help us massively. It allows us to do more and we can have more, we can wear more hats, we can actually do those things better. That's really, really big. And most people do not utilize um, technology in a meaningful way. They're doing things that they shouldn't even be doing, that they could either replace themselves um, or two, they're doing things that they're bad at that they could replace. Then the next thing is the overall integration of technology to add value or create value, meaning add value to a business function. So because of this, we're worth more. Or to, I'm making this and now we can sell it and go to market with it, right? These are all very important, but the most important thing is that there is no wealth creation without technology today. It doesn't exist. And if you think that it does, you have a ginormous blind spot and you will quickly become irrelevant. That is not an option today. The lack of adaptation, um, the lack of acceptance, the lack of implementation of technology is a death knell. It moves too fast, it adds too much value. And there's a lot of people that think, oh, don't get involved in that high-flying tech stuff. And of course, don't get, I'm not talking about gambling, right? But you should be, especially if you are the investor, the CEO, you should be up to date on all industry asset changing technology that is coming in that could, you should be reading up on it, you should understand it, and you should be taking risks with it. You should be implementing it, both hardware, software, front end, back end. You should be discovering and learning and you will learn either you will learn either this will change things or this isn't gonna do anything so we can ignore it, right? But don't be blockbuster, right? I am always afraid that I don't see what will kill us and I want to know. I wanna know what will change our industry, what will make me not competitive or what will simply replace us. That is my job, right? And so everybody, technology is a wealth creator in all sense of the word. It has been since, well, forever. The first time we started using tools, right? Um, industrial revolution. We're on the third wave now, on the fourth wave in the implementation of AI. For those of you that think, oh, AI is stupid, it's overrated. Uh, just remember this, AI has been here long before ChatGP started. And the Blackstone, which is the largest owner of assets in the world, they own everything, 
really got there because of Aladdin, their AI platform that they created back in 2014. So your life has actually changed due to AI, whether you realize it or not. And ChatGPT, everybody, is just a front-facing consumer version of it. Um, but AI will be integrated in every single part of our daily lives because it already is. You just don't see it because you're not saying, oh, I don't use ChatGPT. Now, I'm not saying you need to be an expert. I'm not saying you should even be concerned. But you should understand. I don't want to know how AI actually necessarily works. I don't. I'm going to talk to experts in that. I want to understand application and opportunity of it. But I don't need to know how it's coded. I don't need to know any of those things, nor do I care. But I can't have my head buried in the sand over not into, this isn't just on AI. I mean, I'm just over on everything. Now, Wall Street right now is obsessed with AI. And is have the markets overdone it? Meaning, have they over-speculated? Is it this gold rush thing? Yeah, I think so, right? Most of these AI companies are anything. They're going to go away. None of these things. I'm not buying them. I'm not talking about an investment here. That's not what I'm doing. But I am looking, and right now in our business, we have implemented AI, and we will continue to, uh, just like we did the internet. So that's how you should think of it, right? Now, hype? Yeah, it's hyped because people understand. And just like the internet was not a fad, neither is this. How do we know? Because we're just now talking about it. It's already been in the works and working and changing the world before we even got to this point. Once again, just like the internet. By the time everybody was talking about the internet, the internet had already been working and in process for like a decade, okay? All right, moving on. Behind the curtains my struggles um overall what i'm doing on a day-to-day -day, market returns uh different things like that i wanted to give a insight um this is the main reason you know for this podcast i'm trying to bring insight help you guys and share knowledge that we're learning here i mentioned a little bit about the structures deal structures opportunities are hard to uh capitalize because of the fact that money's constrained right and the actual work to get buyers and sellers, this is something that will continue. We're not seeing this end and will continue through next year. We think most of the opportunities that will arise in the next six months will probably be gone after that point. Um, when we look at what I'm struggling with internally, um, the market has shifted so fast that we have implemented a lot of strategies that we're trying to take advantage in this market. So. There's everything from uh, our overall investor communication, acquisition, new opportunities that are arising versus ones that are actually good and not because what's happened is underwriting tends to be a big struggle. The reason underwriting is a struggle is because rates have dropped and they've overdone it and they've, over, they've overcorrected in lots of instances, but street rates aren't the same as in-place rates. So understanding that in the underwriting, it, it does, it makes things difficult. And so we've uh, been developing um, a lot of different things. We have our own proprietary revenue management system that we use and how we implement that. I have great team that is working on these things. We have an amazing asset manager and how they're doing our deals and tracking information from the past inputs, the outcomes, and then allocating that to the future and seeing what returns are going to be expected for not just the asset, but the investors. Very exciting stuff that they're working on to try to bring uh, clarity to me as well as the rest of the team on understanding what's working and what's not from the ground to the top up. Um, but things have changed a lot and they're still changing and we don't want to miss the boat, which tends to be the bigger thing. So I uh, worked with a lot of accredited investors. That was our main source, right? Accredited investors are gone. So they just disappeared like overnight. Um, the news got bad, right? Inflation hit, everybody got worried. And that I think arose a lot of... Uh, weaknesses within my structure is that I was dependent on capital that moves with the economy. Obviously, this is widespread. Everybody is having this problem. Um, I've been traveling, meeting with uh, other operators, fund managers, as well as capital allocators. This is universal. Uh, everybody's saying we're at 10% of what it was literally just a, a year ago. So understanding in that environment, that also allows me to look forward because I don't want to go the next six months and not be able to capitalize on opportunities that may be the best you know we'll see in a decade or more i really don't want to miss that and my business can't be dependent on unknown sources now my philosophy was that we're opening up opportunities for normal people to come in 
that's the whole thing, right? We're creating wealth creation for normal people, not just ultra wealthy people. So with that, with that mission, right, to save capitalism through my company by allowing people to participate in it, um, I, I know that's short-sighted everybody. I guess I just didn't think about, oh, well, what if the mechanism to do the thing, saving capitalism, right, and having people participate in that wealth creation process actually ends up being the thing that makes it so we can't do that, right? So the bridge actually <laughs> doesn't work. Um, and so now we're looking at different ways that we can do capital stacks because the higher up you go, ultra high net worth people, funds, family offices, they're allocating capital. So really it's the retail investors, the normal accredited investors that have stopped. All the rest of them, they're actually wanting to place more capital. They're coming in full on. And um, I don't have answers to this yet because I do not want to leave our mission, but I do need another source uh, how I would view it as a more consistent layer so we can out, because I'm talking about allocating lots of capital, everybody. I'm talking 100 plus million that we need and we need to raise and we already have raised. So it's it's not like I'm talking about one or two deals or a few million, That that's easy. We can go raise 10, 15, 20 million, right? I, I'm talking about more and very, very consistent because the rest of my business is depending on it. So these are some struggles that we're looking at now is how to make consistency within that model so we can capture on deals even when times may be bad and that source of capital runs out without going away from our core purpose to save capitalism by allowing people to participate in it, get more of the average people, actual equity owners, right? Now, that also includes obviously the bad, but actually get that upside of, upside of that economic growth. Now, other things that um, we're looking at that has changed wildly in the operations part, implementing our new proprietary revenue management system, that, that's been a struggle. Why? Because at volume, and I had a lot of struggles at the beginning and spring. The technology and our other companies, we, we found gaps where they weren't talking. Um, it was very, very frustrating for me. Uh, we had all these great tools and abilities and all of a sudden there were some kinks in them. And so I spent most of the summer and have spent a lot of them working out the kinks of all these companies and the platform and the connectivity. Uh, the revenue management system then was another one because as markets, uh, we, we got vacancy, right? that actually made the revenue management pricing system, dynamic pricing, that much more important. And it made it, so you have to use it a lot more, which at scale, that was very hard because ours is proprietary. And so we have to manually do it and input it. Now with that, we see the problem, which leads to opportunities. So we're now building a software system that will do all of our layers that we have, which doesn't exist internally. And we've even thought about maybe opening that up so other people can basically do it. That's what uh, created the separation between rate drops in the market and our revenue was our revenue management, um, dynamic pricing, proprietary system. That's why we have those spreads. And uh, that wasn't working, I think, like it should have been. And that had a lot to do with the market overall collapse. So when market shifts happen, it can take a while to really sift through and see where things are 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 hitting and where things are are either the base or the opportunity, the upside, where the weakness is. And as you're sifting through that, finding it, you're going through all these numbers. You're looking at how do we raise it. That that can just take time to flush out. Um, that was frustrating for me because I felt like we should have been moving faster after it. But if you did something and didn't fully know then you may have lost tenants or there may have been short-term consequences with it. So that lack of connectivity, everything. We've been working through that uh, a lot on the year. Luckily, revenue's up, even though um, our market rates are, are down and we fixed a lot of those connectivity problems so we can fire on all cylinders. And now I actually believe we're hitting the bottom. We thought, we, we were talking about in 2021 and 2022, we said 2023 is gonna suck. Guess what, it did. 2024, it's not that it's going to be better, but it is going to be the bottom and the stabilizing point. We still fully believe that, and we're actually seeing and how we're operating in numbers because we now know how to take advantage, and those things are working together. That shows me a sign of a, uh, a bottom because it's becoming clearer. So market participants will be able to take advantage. Um, so in the next six months, but next summer, next spring, we're very excited. All of it's working together, um, and uh, that's going to work great. Now, my day-to-day how things work. My day-to-day, -day, first and foremost, is very planned. So I have my VA who works and actually, excuse me, not my VA, my um, executive assistant. We, I don't do a few things. I don't answer emails. 
she does, she allocates people. I only answer the ones that are the most important that she needs me to. Um, most of the time is spent with my COOs, the actual people that are doing operations. It is spent on meeting with people, creating opportunities that may both be deals, that may be large investors, right? Or my investors, what I need to talk to. Um, it is then working with people in the company, but moving forward initiatives, like opportunities like the technology stack and making sure all those works. So I am putting out fires, and then I'm also looking at fires. And by putting out fires, I mean coming up to solutions with problems, connecting people that can solve those problems, and then taking advantage of opportunities that arrive from it. So that, and then com uh, combined with actually getting out here and telling people and showing people. That's another, you know, 15% of my time that I'm actually sharing with people. I work a lot, but it's generally my choice. So what I mean by that is I like to, I, I'm doing what I love. Now I take time off for my kids and, and we, we, we do all of that. That's all fun. And yes, I'm in total control of that. Meaning some days I'll just be like, Hey, I'm not doing this. Clear my schedule for the afternoon. Cause I want to go do something with my son. Right. Or I'm going to take my daughter out this weekend on a date night. So I'm leaving here or Thursdays nights. My kids don't have school on Fridays. So Friday mornings, I'm always like my, my schedule is cleared because I wake up, make, make breakfast with the kids. So I make sure that I have time. I enjoy time and I spend it with them. Um, but I like tackling problems and finding solutions and then sharing it with others and giving it back. So we, we do spend a substantial amount of time on that. That's really what makes up my day. Um, it's always changing. I travel quite a bit lately um, because of everything that's been going on. Uh, that's my choice. I sit on boards. I have to work on the companies that I own. I sit on boards. Um, so I have meetings like that and I'm helping take those higher level things to the next level. I am also looking for key talent and bringing those people in to move our, our companies, our portfolio companies to the next level. But guess what? with the good, which means being in my position, doing what I do, which I like to do, also comes the bad. It means I am the front line. So I'm putting out the fires. I'm getting the calls, the issues. I'm, right, I'm doing that. I am an operator, right? I'm a builder. I'm not a capital allocator. I'm not a face on here or just, you know, if you're listening here, that's, you know, I actually am doing. Um, and I run my, my company, so I'm CEO. I like to do that. I will not stop doing that. It is my passion. It is bringing people together and bringing these opportunities. It also gives me insight to share because I'm doing it. So I can tell you what's going wrong and what's working. It's not that I am, once again, just trying to get money and move money around and capital allocators and I'm not actually in the weeds doing it because I am. So um, that I think brings value. I think it brings value to my content. I think it brings value to what we're trying to do. Uh, but once again, with the good comes the bad. The thing is, though, if you love what you're doing, you're okay with the bad, because there is no good without it. So I don't view it almost as even bad. It's just part of my process. It's part of the process. I view the bad as helping. And I, I'm not taking care of something bad. I'm helping with something which brings me value. I'm creating solutions, right? So it's not even so much problems, it's I'm creating solutions. And uh, that's how you have to look at it. But there is, guys, no good without bad. That's how freedom works, that's how capitalism works. You want people to be open and have free speech, you also have to accept you're not gonna like what people say. You want capitalism to create goods and services, you're gonna have rich people. You want to have progress, you also have to allow people to do bad things and say bad things. And it, it just comes with the territory. You cannot have a perfect system where there is no room for error. That is not freedom. Freedom is the ability to err. Capitalism is the ability to err. That's why it works because the bad creates the good. People look at America and they're like, I don't understand. You guys hate each other. You're always fighting, right? It seems so dysfunctional. The reason we fight is because it works. Each state is separate, different cultures. For our listeners that are not in America, you have to realize that it's almost like different countries. And we're all fighting to come up with the correct solution. And we're all doing it to try to understand what's happening. The fighting is what makes us Americans. That's what makes it good. The moment we stop 
is the moment we will have problems. Recessions mean that you have progress. You cannot have depressions without credit. You can't just simply get the good and remove the bad. When you see times like this or you're scared, first of all, the first thing that you need to know in cycles like this, everybody, is it is actually good and part of the process. When we don't have recessions, we get way too big of bubbles. That's bad. Markets need to contract. They need to go up because people are testing things. They're seeing how far they can go. They're seeing what they can do. And we overreach. That's how we explore. And then we have to go back. It didn't work. This is wrong, right? Please remember that. Don't be afraid of it. Embrace it. Understand you're going to screw up. I know that by sharing things with others, I am going to get criticism for it. I will be ridiculed for things that I say that may be wrong and I have to change my mind on. And I'm doing it publicly. That sucks, right? I don't necessarily like it and most people don't. But the good so far outweighs the bad. Why? Because I am being honest and I am being transparent and I'm saying what I feel and what I believe. And I'm happy to be challenged on exactly all of my beliefs and I will look at them all and I will change and I have changed and I want to allow that change for it. Too often, everybody, we don't speak up. We don't say our mind. And then two, when we should change our minds, we don't. Lots of times we are so concerned with the bad and we won't even let ourselves have the good. And it's okay. Now, easier said than done. I have to remind myself of that all the time. In fact, the hospital was probably the greatest blessing ever to me. I never did social media. I never shared anything. I was never open because I didn't want the criticism. When I became fully paralyzed and was in the hospital, I didn't even, couldn't even use the bathroom. People rolled me over, wiped me with rags. That's how I bathed. And I just laid there paralyzed and my head rolled over as they scrubbed me down and bathed me. I had no pride left. So when I got out, I was a lot less concerned about public criticism and ridicule because I, I didn't seem to care much. Now, as time has gone on and I've gotten better and I don't have some of those things that are more visible, um, I've gotten more concerned on what people think. And that is not a good thing. I don't like that. And I need to stop that. And so if I'm holding back or not saying things or not expressing or not okay with my weaknesses or my flaws, um, I apologize and I will try to make sure that I am actively engaged in being honest and transparent and okay talking about flaws, things that are going wrong and not be so concerned with criticism. Because I believe through that, most of all my growth has come from. That's where it's all happened. And I need that and want that, as so should you. All right, thanks everybody.